This message by Sam Shin, entitled "The Work of Love," was recorded at Wellspring Church on January twenty-six, twenty twenty. The text for this message is First John chapter three, verses sixteen to eighteen. So the scripture reading for today comes from First John three, and it's verses sixteen through eighteen, and that reads, "By this we know love." That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Last week we talked about how do we love one another and... I had shared how John had given as one way we do that is that we do not love like Cain loved. So that's a negative example. And you probably think that's, that's a hard to live by if it's only a negative example. Well, this week, John lays out three more positive reasons why we should and how we could love one another. Really, it's the how. How should we love one another? And the first is by sacrifice, and second by generosity, and the third is by what he describes as action and truth. And so we'll look at uh, the first way we love one another, besides not being like Cain, in verse 16. John writes, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And the real question that remains from that passages, what does it mean for us to lay down our lives for the brothers? That is to say, how should we die for those we love? And without a doubt, John is, as a disciple of Jesus, he's listened to much of Jesus' teachings on love. And to go back to Jesus and think about some of the things that he said about love, I'd like to do that by quoting to you John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. This is essentially um, the foundation upon which John says these words in chapter 3. So John says in John 15, oh, Jesus says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command command you so that you will love one another. It seems clear that this is exactly what Jesus says is the heart of a true friend. The true friend lays down his life for another person. It's exactly what Jesus did for us. And so he's saying, if you are a follower of mine, you also will do the same. The question is, what does this practically look like? What does it mean to lay down your life for another? Well, first is obvious. It's the laying down of your physical life. And even if you don't necessarily have to do that, you understand what it means. And theoretically, 
think if you're a good friend, you'll probably say to somebody, I would be willing to lay down my life for you. We actually don't know whether that will come to pass or not, whether you'll ever be in a situation where you need to test that out. But it is one thing, and most of us can might say, at least to those we care for, I'm willing to lay down my life. Again, whether you do it or not, it is another story. But we're willing to at least say it. And so Jesus says that if you are a true friend, someone who loves another, you will lay down your physical life for, and very specifically, Jesus and John refer to the laying down of life for your brother, your sister, meaning specifically another fellow Christian, someone who is in Christ. Because after all, that's what Jesus did for us. He laid down his life and he didn't just say it. He actually did it. So, even if we are never in a position to die for another person, we're at least called to say we're willing to do it and then hopefully follow through on it. But this really will most likely not be tested in our lives. So it's easy to take a verse like this and say, I'm willing to do this and then pass it off. But there is a way in which we are called to die and it's regularly tested in our lives, in our relationships to one another. That is to say that we are called to die to ourselves for the sake of another person. And this is something that is obvious. If we're called to die for one another physically, then surely Jesus is saying we're called to die to our own ego, to our own pride for one another. Now, this is something that you might say is regularly put into the forefront of our hearts when it comes to relationship. And it's so difficult. It is very difficult to regularly die to yourself. It's hard to die to your sense of pride. Or when you're unjustly wronged and you want vengeance, to die to that vengeance. Maybe to die to the financial burden that another person casts on you because you're in a relationship with them. And maybe they say, can I borrow some money? And your first instinct is to reel back and say, I, I'm not going to do that because that puts me into physical financial jeopardy. Well, can you imagine Jesus saying, die to yourself in that context? Die to yourself in your personality so you're more introverted. And to love one another means to go and put yourself out there, to welcome the stranger, the newcomer, to go and perhaps even be rejected that that dying is not so easy. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus calls us to do. I really like the way that Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. He uh, gives this example as the way in which we die to one another in love. And it's the idea of the, this very interesting dynamic and tension point between liking and loving. And that's sort of how a lot of us as Christians tend to view relationship. Well, I love you, but I actually don't like you. So as long as I love you, it's okay. I don't have to like you. And he describes it, and I, I think he's right on, spot on on this, is that he describes it as that liking is sort of the animal instinct in us. It's, it's how we work our lives. It's our emotions, our feelings control us. And we don't even realize it. A couple of weeks ago, I took my family. My parents were visiting us, and we went to this place called Año Nuevo. If you've never been there, it's actually really 
spectacular because this is the elephant seal breeding season. And it's right by Half Moon Bay, and there is a huge colony of elephant seals. And you go on this walking tour, and you go right up to there. And some of you probably have done this. But it's it's just this whole beach of elephant seals all around. And they're breeding. Breeding. You know, you know what that is. But really, it is so stark. I mean, these, they just literally cannot control themselves. And it's just this whole scene and you realize the just all the the fights and the aggression and they literally cannot help themselves it's part of their core being and nothing stops them that's really in a way what it means to like someone it is you're naturally inclined to a person based on personality and oh they have certain common interests or that your feel with that person is good and so therefore you go and it's, it just, you hit it off like that. It takes no effort, no energy. And then we think, okay, those are the people that I like, but those other people that I don't have that type of quick connection or our personalities mesh or when I talk, they understand and vice versa. Those people, I don't really want to spend time with them. They're too much work, but I'll love them, but I don't really like them. That's the way in which the world operates. It's our instinctual core being. But that's not love. Love is very different. The Bible tells us in 1 John 4, 8, and we'll cover this coming soon. John says, God is love. Three words. God is love. That is to say that inherently Love is defined by God himself. You cannot have love without God. That's what John is saying. That's what the Bible says. And if you can have a relationship with someone where you simply just like them and you have certain common interests, but God is nowhere in view and there's no call of God in your life and the challenges of love or care and affection that come with relationship because God is nowhere in that picture, then really that's not what the Bible describes as a relationship founded on love. So the truest form, according to the Bible, of all loving relationships has to have God not only at the core center of that relationship, but he has to be the motivator upon which you press forward and remain faithful despite challenges and conflict. Without God being the centerpiece of that, you're not really loving that person. That means love is so much more than simply a feeling, a momentary fleeting moment of passion, romance. That's not love, not according to the Bible. Love is covenant, loyalty, commitment, faithfulness. Love is grace. Love initiates grace because that's what God has done. And because he himself defines love, then therefore we have to respond in the same way. And this means that God's love for us through Jesus and how he has loved us is always the power upon which we love. That's verse 16. It's a derivative love. It's God loved us this way, therefore we love others this way. 
And every time we forget about God's loving us this way, we won't be able to love others in the same way, with sacrifice, with faithfulness. I'm firmly convinced that if you should meet a a fellow believer of Christ and you don't connect with that person based on instinct, personality type, um, circumstances, your feelings, but if you pursue that relationship based solely on Christ and Christ alone, you will come to a far more lasting relationship with that person than you would with any person you like, like solely based on personality type, common interest. If Christ is not there, that will not last. I mean, clearly, death is the end of that relationship. And I would say that most of the time, it's not just death that ends that relationship. When you move away, when there's distance, we sort of lose track. It's very easy to really enjoy liking people, but then as circumstances change, they sort of fade out of your life. Many of us perhaps who are married and you have a best, a best man or a a maid of honor. And how many of you still think that those people are the closest people in your life? Because you chose those two people. Because you found that person to be the dearest person in your life. And if I were, I'm not going to ask you, not going to take a poll, but really think about this. Is the person that you asked to be your maid of honor, your best man, is that the dearest person in your life as a, a cherished, loving friend? For some of you, the answer might be yes. But I wonder if that's true for most of us. The thing about having Christ at the center of your relationship is that it is not based on, again, personality type, common interest, life stage. When it is about Christ, and that's what defines you. And if we do believe that eternity is true, then that relationship that you have with that person who is a brother or sister in Christ, that's going to continue eternally. That's going to last forever, and that's why it transforms the way you view friendship and relationship and love. So for those of you who are high school students or junior high students, it is a, if you can learn this lesson now, it will dramatically impact the way you live your life for the rest of your life. Far too many of us go to the high school or the junior high and let what the people you meet, that you like them based on popularity or on common interest or on some sort of personal pursuit or a club or whatever it might be. Or maybe they're fun or maybe they're wealthy or whatever, something like that. And if that's how it defines who you are, It's going to be really hard in life because that's changing your identity based solely on whether people are cool or whether people fit in, what type of music they like. That all fades away. And the sad part of it is that I wonder how many of us who are no longer 15 but now 45 still have that mentality of thinking, I only want to spend time with people who are in my exact life stage 
who when I, as soon as I meet them, there's a click and it takes no work at all. I just really like that person. And that's who we surround ourselves with. With that, we never, not only do we not grow, the Bible actually says we don't love because love takes work. It's hard. And to love people and to really love them, get ready to labor to make sure that you're going to, sometimes you're going to hurt people and they're going to hurt you. Misunderstandings, miscommunication. That is a regular part of relationship in this world. And to try to avoid that by only surrounding ourselves with safe people, comfortable people, that's not love. There's a big difference between liking and loving. And we have to see that love requires sacrifice. Another way in which this is sort of laid out for us is the concept of initiating reconciliation. John Piper talks about this. He regards it specifically to husbands because as leaders of your family, that husbands, you have the responsibility to initiate reconciliation, meaning that even when you are 100% sure you're right, you initiate reconciliation. Why? Because you lay down your life for those you love. That doesn't always mean that you don't try to work it out or think it through or pray through it, process it. But when push comes to shove, you're the one who is responsible for your family. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, God didn't say to Eve, what did you do? Why did you eat that fruit? He said, Adam, where are you? Where are you? Where were you? And so this initiating of reconciliation is a key part of this sacrificial love. You lay down your life. And we do so because we know, first of all, there is an enemy, as we talked about last week, the devil, whose whole mission and passion is to divide, to separate you from everybody else, especially you from Christ. And the way he does it from you to Christ is you to other people. First, the people who are closest to you, friends, the church, separate you from everyone. So just like if you ever watch those animal shows where there's this lion and they're, they're a pack of lions and they're trying to uh, attack wildebeests, what do they always do? They try to separate that weak animal from the herd. It's impossible for the lions to be able to actually go for the kill in the midst of a huge herd. They find one that is weak and they try to pull that one away from the herd. It's exactly what the devil does all the time. He wants you to always be angry at everyone and think that no one is with you. Everyone's against you. And the way he does it is first within your family, then within your friendships and those whom you've held yourself accountable to and within the church. And so reconciliation is the process by which we decide to labor in love by actually laying down our life, laying down our ego, laying down our pride, not always believing, even though I might have convinced myself delusionally sometimes that I'm a hundred percent right, but I still lay it down. There are so many ways if we were to do this, married couples, parents or children, roommates, friends, that we are called to initiate reconciliation and to do so 
guess what you will feel in the process? Death. It is death to initiate reconciliation. Because you, you're really dying. There's your ego, your, your proud heart that dies when you feel you're right and you still say, I'm willing to, I want to work this out. I want to figure this out. And the reason we do this is because Jesus physically, spiritually died. He bore the brunt of our sins. So we too must do the same. Another way in which we can practically love in this way sacrificially is what I would describe as burdensome hospitality. Burdensome hospitality. Imagine there's a devastating earthquake that takes place in the Bay Area, not so far-fetched. Imagine that half of the people in our church lost their homes. They lost everything. And so on a Sunday, I came up here and I said, my friends, half of the people in our church have lost their homes. Would the other half of you be willing to take in those families? And so I'm sure that many of you would say yes, if you want to do it. So you do it for a weekend. What about a week? You know, after a while, a week, and you take in a family and they have two young kids and they're loud, they get sick, and suddenly their sickness spreads to your kids. And in the middle of the night, they start crying and you're all tired when you have to go to work. And you're a neat freak. Everything is in order and they have all these toys all over the place and you come home and you step on a, a Lego and you're, you're in pain and suddenly that weekend and week, it seems like an eternity. But you think to yourself, you know what? They're going through a hard time. I can do this for a week. And then they say, you know what? It's going to take a year. A year. And that's when you really think, I don't love these people. <laughs> I don't think I could do it. Burdensome hospitality. Sacrificial love. I can't do that unless I go back to the well of the cross and remember that my God, who is the ruler of all, came and gave his life and brought me as filthy, dirty in my soul as I am and brought me to his house and didn't just say, you can stay for a weekend or a week or a year, but you can stay eternally, but the price is going to be my son and his blood. I'll still pay that price. If I don't go back to that well over and over again, I will not be able to do this. My flesh says, no, I have a limit. Boundaries are there and you're not passing that. But Look at this verse. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Can you as a Christian who actually says, yes, I believe God's word, read that verse. If that scenario were to happen, can you honestly say that, yeah, there's a limit to that? See, in our hearts, there really is a limit to that. Whether we want to believe it or not, we can theoretically say, I'll lay, my, I'll lay down my life for the brothers. We, we have a hard enough time laying down our lives for a moment, even in our ego and pride. We don't even want to say sorry to our child 
whom we screamed at sinfully, or to our spouse who we're ungracious to. There is, I, these are just three examples. There are so many examples of the way in which we can lay down our lives. We're called to do it, but we won't be able to do it unless we go back to the well of the cross. This leads really right into the next way that we love one another, which is generosity, according to verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how, this is a really important question, how does God's love abide in him? And this should make sense. It's very logical. John is very, very logical. You cannot love one another in this way unless you have the love of God because he's the only one who can give you this true type of love. But here's the challenge, is that if you love anything else more than God, you won't be able to love this way. John said the same thing in 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if you love something else more than God, then no wonder why it's so hard to love people. Because we actually have a divided heart of love. We don't love God. We actually love something else more than him. So you can't look at this verse and see it as don't give out, uh, you have to give out a handout. When a homeless person comes to you and we see many, you should give money. That's not what this verse is saying. It's so much more than that. That is to say that if you are truly sacrificially generous based on what Christ has done for you, then you lay down your life. And that means that you actually find that the things that you have in this world, you're a steward of it. They're not, you're, you don't own them. It's from the Lord. And also, we're only going to have it for a short period of time and there's going to be an eternity to live for. And so if you're basing your hope on the treasures of this world, then ultimately the Bible says, and you just read through Proverbs, you'll see it, you're a fool. When you take pride in what you own, or what you make, or what you have, you really understand why it is so hard to be sacrificially generous, because it's yours. But Jesus says this in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. You know, I, in a church context, we take offering. There's a The reason we take offering, I want you to know, is not so that this church can remain afloat, or that salaries can be paid, buildings can be bought. You might think that's the case. Is Does the net result happen that that actually is how it plays out? Practically, yes. But here's the thing. If you did not, if no one in this church ever gave to the, the offering that came, what would happen? The church would close down. Would the gospel no longer be preached? No, it will always be preached. You know, Jesus said the, the rocks will cry out. If no one worships the Lord, it's not as though God is not going to be worshipped. The stars sing his praises. The trees clap their hands and shout. God will always be praised. So he doesn't need this church to worship him. He doesn't need 
us to play music for someone to stand here and proclaim or to counsel. That's not why we do what we do. That's not why we give. Also, know this is that even if I were to not be here doing what I do, I know one thing. God, he feeds the birds of the air. He dresses and clothes the lilies of the field. He will care for me and my family. Whatever that means. And I trust that with all my heart. So you, you do not give because you need to support the staff of our church. The reason why we take offering is because it is a reminder, not just, it's a reminder for every one of us, from the littlest of children to the oldest of adults, that this world is not my home. The money that you make and what whatever you give is a reflection of your heart of trust to him. And to say that what I have, Lord, it's from you. It's not something that I ultimately need to survive because you are the one who allows me to survive. And so what we do as a church, we take that money and we use it in the best way within our bounds of our leadership and in the vision of our church to think, how does this money support the vision of living for Christ and having his name glorified? And so it goes to the global church. It goes to, goes to missions. It goes to how do we, our, how do we think about the poor? How do we think about the ministry of God's people and the growth of God's people and the advancement of the kingdom of God? And all of that is to be used for those purposes. But it's not that God needs that because he has, owns the cattle on a thousand hills. This is absolutely why the widow's two mites, you know, when she gives those two less than pennies, and Jesus says, look at that woman. She is giving far more than the, the wealthy giving their percentages. Because what she gave with those two pennies was her life. She was saying, I trust you, God, with all that I have. And this is just a symbol of that. God doesn't need two pennies. And he certainly doesn't need two billion dollars. What God wants most is for us to realize that all of our resources that are necessary for living is in God himself. We can trust him. We don't need to trust this world and its promises. And so when John says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, sees his brother and yet closes his heart, how does God's love abide in him? It's a call for us to say, trust that I, what you have is because I'm blessing you and I'm using that to bless other people. But if you close that heart and say, no, this is mine, then you could see why God would say, how, how does my love abide in you? If you love and cherish the treasures of this world that much, that you see someone, a brother or sister in Christ in need and your, your pocketbook is, your purse is closed, your wallet is shut, and you're not even thinking, well, how can I be a blessing? Then it really does beg the question, do I know Christ? Do I know the cross? This is a call to have compassion for those, at the very least, for those who are in Christ, to be generous with fellow believers who are in real need, not just here within our church, but even globally. 
Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. That's why we have brothers and sisters. They're born for adversity. To be there when it is people are going through our most difficult hour of need. By being generous to fellow believers, it breaks the power and the lust and the idolatry that our possessions hold over us. Because it is a power. It is as powerful as any sexual image. The power of our purse. And when we are so tight-fisted with our money and our time and our resources that we say, I'm too busy, I don't want to serve in this way. My gifts are far too greater. Then perhaps we don't understand the love of God that abides in us. When we say a typhoon has destroyed a church and we're raising funds for them because people cannot survive. Or there's a church in Pakistan where they've lost everything because the government has come and oppressed them. Or there's the poor in Africa who are brothers and sisters in Christ. We actually have visited many of us and they literally are starving to death. And we just close a blind eye and say, you know what? No, I, I got my own family to take care of then we have to go back to John's question. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in them? That's a big question for us. It's an important one. And all you need to do is just go back and look at your budget and how you spend your money. And you can really evaluate that question by how you spend your money for the year. As we're coming to tax time, and you're probably thinking about all the different ways and tax deductions and all those things, all you need to do is just go back and look at your percentages. It's very easy to do that. And then to ask yourself, what does this budget say about my heart? Because it does. Where your treasure is, your heart is also. So if we're not sacrificially generous, even especially to those brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need, then boy, does that say something about our hearts, about our view of what Christ has done for me. Imagine, just imagine if Jesus said, I'll only give this much to you. We wouldn't be here today. We would be bound for hell. This is why John gives us verse 18 then. Little children, let us love in word or talk No, I'm sorry, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's easy to read about love and be inspired by a book or a message than to actually go out and love. It's easy to read. Isn't it easy to read about a book about marriage, about resolving conflict in marriage? But then when the conflict comes and you got to actually put it into practice, that's when we say, I like the book better. Or we read about difficulties in parenting, difficult children, but then we don't want to love difficult children. It's easy to read about loving people in the church until you have to love people in the church. It's easy to protest about the situation of the poor church in Africa, but it's another thing to actually do something about it to talk about those who are suffering for the sake of the gospel in churches where they're being persecuted for the sake of Christ, but to actually put in my time and money and efforts 
to pray for them. It's easy to say, I will change, but it's very hard to change. Why? Because change takes intentional, difficult, exhausting work. It takes work. You can't just say it. You have to work at it. My wife and I, one time we were trying to uh, work on some of the habits that we have we had incurred. And as someone who speaks regularly, publicly, one of the things that we had pointed out, even amongst each other, was that we say the word like without realizing it. You know, like talking like this. And we decided, let's try to help each other not say the word like so much. Actually, I tried to do that with my kids. They couldn't even do it. Too hard. Teenagers, there's something about that word like. They love that word like. But, so we tried doing it. We And as we were doing it, we said, you said like, and we pointed out, and then try adding in, you know, uh, huh, you know, so all these little filler words that we do. And as you do that, if you, if you're open to even trying, you actually improve, you get better. But what does it take? It takes, you got to want it. And you have to have someone who's going to point it out to you. And when they say it, you got to be open to them versus saying, just leave me alone. In other words, to have change happen, you have to believe it. And then you have to have accountability. You have to pray about it. You have to focus. You have to reflect. You have to be humble about it. And that regular ongoing impact, you will see, it makes a difference. But we see the difficulty of this change in some biblical examples. Take, for example, the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, the rich young man. He thinks he is doing all that he can to act morally and righteously before God. But he's, and he's willing to talk about changing and, and following God, but only to act to what he feels comfortable with. And when Jesus says, You've done all things well. Now follow me, sell all your possessions. See, what he wasn't willing to do was to act what John says, in deed and in truth. So Jesus was holding him to his words. If you say, love your neighbor as yourself, I've done all that, done all these commands, then I want you to put into action this one thing that is keeping you from actually experiencing that love, which is you love money more than God. And that's where he put his his foot down and said, no, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. It hurt. See, truth and acting on truth will always bring pain because it takes effort, hard work, energy, and a, a decision, a commitment, a covenant of saying, I will change. But that change always has pain. It always is hard and difficult. It's because it's a dying to yourself. It's the realization that you are being sanctified, purified. The Bible often describes it as you're in a crucible. It's a refining fire. It's burning away dross. It's changing you from the inside. And it's so painful. Because deep down, you live your whole life saying, this is right and this is who I am. You can't change my humor. You can't change the way that I talk. You can't change my outlook, my worldview. And when you're willing to submit and humble yourself, the pain starts because you're dying to yourself. You're being made anew. You're being born again. 
When you're born again, God does an amazing work. You begin to see that all those things that you treasured and cherished so much, they're not so important after all. It means that maybe you know you're, again, we'll use this, and you're in a conflict with a spouse. You believe you're completely right. But by initiating reconciliation, which you get rejected for, and you still press on, there's a dying in that. And it's hard. It is so, so hard. Maybe you leave behind a great job because you want to go into ministry, pastoral ministry. I pray that that would happen, even in our church. But then, as you weigh it, our first instinct is, I want to go to a suburban church where I'm comfortable, my family's safe. And suddenly there's a conviction. You hear a speaker and say, we need places in this country that's closed that needs the gospel. And that stretches you beyond what you can imagine. Or maybe, as I shared earlier, there's a, a family that that has lost their home because of a fire and the word gets out and we send out an email that says this family has lost their home and they need a host and we don't know how long it's going to be. How long will they have to wait till someone says we're willing to do it? If it's about comfort, no one will answer that. If it's about liking, no one will answer that. But if it's Christ save me, I can do this. I want to do this, even though I don't want to do this. See, love and deed and truth is truly a dying to yourself. And you can truly live as you trust that God is going to meet your needs in surprising, spectacular ways. And he wants to use that weakness that you have, which says, no, not me. I don't want to do that. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, to make, to perfect you, to change you, to show you who he really is. Without this heart to follow Christ, especially when it is most difficult and trying, you will not understand the cross. So when we sing about the cross, it won't strike you because you haven't died. You're still clinging and saying, I have better. I can offer. I have more. But only when we get to the place where we see that I'm a sinner. I put Jesus on that cross. Well, we really understand this. Evangelist Ravi Zacharias tells this story. I have a friend who spoke to me of how difficult it was for him when he finally learned the heavy cost of his sin through the forgiveness extended to him. He had betrayed his wife and family and lived through the pain of asking for forgiveness and rebuilding that trust. Somehow, over a period of time, he assumed that even for them, the hurt was mended and the past expunged from their memory. One day, he returned home from work early in the afternoon just to get a break. Unaware that he was home, his wife was on her knees, crying out to God to help her forget the pain she and her children were bearing. There was a rude awakening to him of the cost of his sin and of his family's sacrificial love. Now multiply that wrong by a limitless number and you will get a glimpse of what Christ bore on the cross for you and for me. The love that God had for us on that cross, that is the personification of the work of love. The work of love in deed and in truth. 
He doesn't just tell us we need to love other people. He bore the cost of our sin, our guilt, our shame, so that we would be freed forever from that. He worked the greatest work of love on that cross. Never think the cross is just simply Jesus died on that cross. He labored. It wasn't... Imagine if his love was based on feelings, emotions, and likes. He would have never gone to that cross. Jesus would have never suffered and died in our place if it was because he felt like it. Or we were so loving that he decided to do it. Quite the opposite. No, love for us was gracious, astounding, extravagant, but excruciatingly painful work for Jesus. How then can we not work to love others when he has loved us with such a love? I want to close with Isaac Watts' words in the beautiful hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, which I believe expresses this love so well. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my own. Let's pray. Oh God, oh Father, I do believe we fall so far short, so much of your glory that we don't understand fully what took place on that cross. Forgive us for the many times that we have believed that simply the cross is an image. It's something that we pass by so quickly in our lives without realizing it is on the basis of that hard, laborious love, that faithful, loyal, covenantal, steadfast love that you call us then to love others. And you didn't just tell us to do it, you demonstrated it while we were still sinners. Oh Lord, I pray for those of us who perhaps in our souls have decided there's a limit to what we can do in loving. But because we are so affected by what we believe you have done in truth, therefore we reach the stranger, the alien, the disenfranchised. We go out and we care and we are concerned about the impoverished. We are sacrificially giving and generous. We initiate reconciliation even though we might ourselves believe we are right. But you laid down your rights, O oh Lord, as God. You emptied yourself and made yourself nothing. You humbled yourself to death, even death on a cross, so that we could have life forever with you. May that flow out of our souls. May this communion be but a sign and a symbol that we believe with all of our hearts, this is our truth. This is what we stand on. 
Open our hearts to yourself, O Lord, by opening our hearts to love one another. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name.